0: Welcome to The Derivative by RCM Alternatives, where we dive into what makes alternative investments go, analyze the strategies of unique hedge fund managers, and chat with interesting guests from across the investment world. Welcome to June. You made it. Through the least fun, five months to start a year in quite some time. This relentless grind lower in stocks, bonds, and crypto. I miss the good old-fashioned panic-stricken sell-offs. But you know what I don't miss? The chance to go to Vegas and hear the best in the business, dish on derivatives. That's right. Yours truly attended the EQ Derivatives Conference in Vegas last week with none other than Mutiny Fund's Jason Buck. What was said, what wasn't said, what caught our attention, we're breaking it all down in this two-part episode. Part one's right here, uh, and we're going to put up part two over on Jason's Mutiny Investing podcast. Go find that on Stitcher. People use Stitcher anymore? I don't know. Find it on your favorite pod platform, Spotify, Apple, whatever you got. Uh, Check the show notes for the link. So send it. This episode is brought to you by RCM's VIX and Volatility Specialists and its Managed Futures Group. We've been helping investors access volatility traders like the ones we just heard from at this conference. It can help you make sense of Gamma, Vega, Vanna, and all the rest. Check out the newly updated VIX and volatility white paper at rcmalts.com under the education slash white papers tab. And now back to the show. Okay, we are here with Jason Buck of Mutiny Funds. Uh, The two of us were just out in Las Vegas at EQ Derivatives Conference, um, which is... Not sure what it's trying to be actually, but it's got a lot of option traders, hedge funds, insurers that use option overlays, uh, exchanges that sell the options for all those groups to use. So it's kind of a collection of all these different groups that are using quote unquote derivatives to manage risk and drive returns. Um, Jason, what were your overall thoughts? What was the, uh, the vibe there in Vegas?
1: Um, I think was interesting. I want to touch on EQD real quickly too. It's like I think it's just like EQD or EQ derivatives is the best like source for like uh, the derivative sides of like hedge funds or like you said insurers as well. So it's like if you want to learn about options volatility and derivatives, I think EQD and all their, their writing they used to publish a physical magazine which was great. Now it's all online, um, but that's probably the best source for learning about like our space in general. And I thought the conference is great. They throw you know multi conferences all over the world. I think they were just in Barcelona. Then they, we went to the global in Vegas, and I think upcoming they have Australia and Singapore. But the idea is they cover the world of options, derivatives, and, and a lot of the times primarily do the lens of vol. But um, as Jeff referenced, it's like you know, you're looking at it from multiple perspectives. You're looking at it from the, the vendors and providers, to, from, from data to execution, to you know options and, and volatility hedge fund managers, to the insurance side too, which is always fascinating, I think, for the rest of us to see people running ridiculous amounts of money. Um, but the overall vibe in general that I got, like the consensus was that we've had an orderly sell-off here in the S&P, and you know that we haven't seen this pickup in ball, especially fixed strike fall. And they're talking about just the headwinds when you have a, just an orderly grind down. You know when the market is grinding down lower than. Expected or implied volatility or variance would expect over the next 30 days. This is when you could see a grind down in markets and then not a pop in volatility. So that was like the general consensus. And I think we'll get into like certain trades that have been working and we'll question if they continue to work, like dispersion. Everybody's kind of like, you know, hot on dispersion. Um, and then outside of like, Vol space, uh, as we'll get into with the first talk here, is uh, trend following. Everybody kept mentioning trend following, commodity trend following, and how well that's doing. So it's interesting to kind of broaden that scope over multiple asset classes and different forms of derivatives. So overall, it was a, it was a fantastic two days at, at the win, And just like hearing these different talks from practitioners at every level uh, was a really
0: interesting way to get some, some context to our, our entire space. And we should say uh, two things. One, we chatted for a minute. After the conference, Jason went back to California. I went back to uh, Chicago. And so classic day after Vegas style, we're in <laughs> sweatshirts and hats here. Uh, if you're seeing us on video, you know that if you're listening to the pod, you don't. So day after Vegas vibes here for us. My, I feel like my voice might be a little scratchy as well.
1: And to, uh, and to clarify, it wasn't like we were out drinking and partying. It's just like uh, talking to people, like yelling over the, the music in Vegas. It's like, yeah, it's just... Uh, the extraversion is what's making us uh, exhausted, and and obviously the trip and just the twenty four seven nature of any sort of event.
0: Yeah, we'll speak for yourself. I there was a little <laughs> bit of burning. Yeah. Yeah. you were crushing the tables. Um, so, uh, and then I also wanted to just add when we're talking about EQD, it's a highly institutional crowd, right? This yes. isn't retail traders trying to learn how to trade options. This is people that have been doing derivatives on the stock indices mainly, but also rates and everything for dozens of years before, before Jason knew what an option was, before I knew what an option was right. They've been in the game very long time. Um, And so this is all the pensions and the endowments and the insurers talking to the hedge fund managers and the index providers that provide those products.
1: Yeah. So like context, like I think Josh Heller I think it runs like four hundred and fifty billion dollars in hedges in Australia for Australian pensions to give you a context there to like some of the insurers were that that size or even potentially larger. But then in the audience, like I di- I just realized I didn't have a chance to say hi to Blair Hall, who's been in this industry for like longer than I've been alive. And oh, so I didn't you know have like, was there yeah, Yeah. I, I, saw him, like, I saw him across the room at once and I was like, I need to find him at one of the breaks um, but didn't get a chance to talk to him. So that, that gives you a, a, an idea of the context of, of who's in the room. And it's probably, I did a rough count. I think it was less than 200 people. But like Jeff said, it's like institutional insiders in the ball and derivative space. So it's a really, really, truly interesting crowd.
0: Uh, so we'll jump right in. The first, and we're not going to go panel by panel, but uh, yeah. we'll just mention something. The first guy, Michael Hay, I can't even remember where he was from. Didn't take that down. Sorry, Michael. Sock, Jen. Sock Jen, talking commodities, right? Big topic. All that's going on there. Um, first, he's, is he British? I'm not sure what he is. I think he's British, but he pronounces it aluminum, Alu- aluminium. Aluminium. Aluminium, which I love. Yeah. <laughs> so, my big takeaway from him is whatever's happening in Russia, this is crazy. If anyone thinks we can just shut off Russia and ha- meet anywhere near the demands that Europe needs, um, he's saying they're so reliant on Russian gas. And just totally unrealistic to think that Europe can replace the energy coming out of Russia within the next 15, 20 years. I think he said, even if all these perfect pieces came into place to replace all that, there'd still be 12% short of the supply that's needed. Uh, my other takeaways there talking about greenflation, which I hadn't heard it called that before. Uh, Michael Coe. Cow, excuse me Mm -hmm. urban cowboy on twitter uh talks about this a lot in his tweet threads of like hey this big push to greener energy is actually going to make the fossil fuels make all that see massive inflation in the interim because it takes a ton of energy to build that green stuff he had some great examples on what that takes i can't remember them um and (laughs) you like but to me there was also like i disagreed with that a little bit of like oh he's saying like okay it takes Whatever, four barrels of equivalent oil to produce one barrel of equivalent oil on a wind farm or something to build that farm yep. to pull the metal out of the out of the earth to build that uh, tower and those blades, but I'm like that's a one-time cost, right? So it kind of was saying like, right, once it's built, that's a sunk cost, and now you're going to get uh, the benefit of that over time. So I disagreed with that a little bit.
1: Like Go you're ahead. whether it's uh, aluminum or aluminium, uh, which is interesting too. Like you're saying, it's actually it's actually hard at these conferences to figure out where people are from because people are born in one way, one place They get educated in another country and they're working in like a third or fourth country. So you have these like blended accents kind of everywhere, which is cool. But um, like that, he was talking about, you know, how, how dirty it is to actually produce aluminum. Um, You know, whether you're using fresh water, salt water, you got to pump that in and the energy input costs to make aluminum are, are always been very difficult. But I think what was you know, we, at least I took notes on things that jumped out at me. And so what was interesting is like, we're so entrenched in the commodity and commodity trend markets that maybe not a lot jumped out at us. And I've seen multiple presentations over the last six months, uh, especially at post Russia about how everybody thinks, you know, just the, the supply side is totally screwed. We have these bullet whip effects that are not going to be, you know, they're going to f- affect the system for years ahead. And that a lot of people think we're in a commodity super cycle. But you've lived through this enough times to know as a CTA that you know commodity supercycles come and go and they tend to evaporate quicker than people realize. So once again, though, this is a great way to have you know trend managers that are doing, you know, all different types of lookbacks and speed to which they'll they'll adjust to markets. But that's what he's trying to show. And, and, and I've seen you know multiple presentations on this, that the the perturbations in Russia and Ukraine can reverberate throughout the system for years to come, not only on the oil side, um, but particularly, obviously, everybody's talking about on the grain side, you know, with winter wheat, et cetera. And the exportation is like, and how screwed does Egypt get or something like that that's getting all those exports? And then are they getting ahead of it with domestic reserves? And does that lead to more hoarding and spiking of prices because of of, of lack of float, um, for, for lack of a better term in the commodity space? So like, go ahead.
0: I was just going to jump in real quick there. He also was mentioning the uh, massive lack of CapEx in not just oil, right? It's pretty well publicized. Like they stopped drilling wells, the shale CapEx way down. Yep. But in the metals industry, he had tons of charts on showing just there's been a, a massive lack of reinvestment in metal mining. And they've just been paying out dividends to the investors, uh, to the shareholders. So that's right. You've got the Russian forest. You've got just inflation overall. Right, people making more money, more money in the system, pushing prices up, and then the massive lack of investment in uh, accessing these commodities more,
1: and that's part of that that greenflation is. It's the irony of ESG is nobody's made investments in the oil companies. So the oil companies don't want to do any capex, which leads to these run up in prices, and then everything ESG, the input costs come from the old economy raw materials. So that's yeah. that's the part of the irony of that that circular feedback loop with uh, greenflation is like to, to get to a green world, you're gonna have to use all the dirty world to get there. And nobody's put in many money in CapEx because of ESG over the last decade. So now this is, puts us in an interesting conundrum where you
0: know we're kind of getting it put into checkmate and how long that continues, we don't know. Uh, it was also funny because I'm sitting here thinking, why, did we, why are we talking about commodities when we're talking about equity derivatives? But <laughs> yeah. I think he mentioned that of like, hey, never thought I'd be a, at this conference talking commodities, we're back, baby. He's well, yeah, like, part of that. My he started ringing t- again.
1: Yeah, that's what. He, uh, that was actually my first note. He said, "Commodity meetings have doubled in the last six months." So he's like, "In on a normal year, let's say I take 150 calls in the entire year, in the first five months I've taken 300 calls." So everybody, yeah, commodities are fresh <laughs> and hot in people's mind again.
0: Uh, and then you might have stepped out to the hallway for something. Yeah. But uh, he had a bunch of great charts on like what the different shapes of the commodity curves look like. He was saying 80% of commodities right now are in what he calls convex backwardation, uh, where, where front months are higher and then it convexly moves lower over time, which is saying, right, that's prices showing there's tons of lower supply right now. So right. prices are high because we can't do it right now, but the expectation over time is we'll eventually get to that stuff. I had a question for us later on, like how, how is carry doing so well when all these markets are in backwardation? now because
1: you're rolling rolling up the curve right you're either the idea with a term structure carry right is you're rolling up or rolling down what i think was interesting and what you just said that i definitely missed that part is like i wasn't i don't think i've thought enough about this of whether when you're in backwardation um is that curve concave or convex in backwardation and that's like what you're saying when it's convex you kind of have that hump rolling down showing it it's it's the near-term supplies everybody's worrying about when it's concave then you may have a a longer problem in the system. So do you think that that makes it transitory when it's more uh, of a a convex shape to the even backwardation of the term structure.
0: Yeah, that was, and he had 12 different, right? Or maybe I guess it's only eight different. So convex, concave, backwardation, contango, and then all the different, what do prices look like or what does carry look like for each of those in each of those environments, which was cool.
1: Yeah, I think whenever they have, Volatile dislocations, like we're seeing now, especially in the term structure, is that is a a target-rich environment for carry, right? Like I think you you have quiet markets when carry can do okay. When it dislocates, carry can get really burned on the left tail. But then when it when it resets that higher vol environment and is is more steady, then that's when carry is going to do exceedingly well. So that's why I would think that term structure or commodity term structure carry is doing so well.
0: Right, and I get in in that backwardation, you're selling the. More expensive. Yeah. And it's gonna revert down to spot. Um, and then just a question I took down here, and he was asking why is oil at 105, 110, whatever we're not destroying yeah. demand. Um, I seem to disagree somewhat with that, but he was saying uh oh, he had some charts tech burden still only four percent globally, some metric of it once it's over four percent, it tends to cause recession, but the impact of those higher costs is still below four percent.
1: Yeah, I think you not. I mean, I may miss, may miss that part of his presentation, but I've seen a lot of, like I said, commodity presentations over the last six months. And one of the ones that everybody feels is like the the camel that breaks the straws back is uh, $200 oil. So that at 110, yeah. 115, like we're not like, we're not, we're not anywhere near that yet. What what kind of,
0: we talking about paper straw that the camel
1: breaks no, his back? No, I like, I like doing the opposite just to get people's like brains to break for a second. <laughs>
0: uh, and then I, this was only a commodity guy could say this. he spent been coming saying, uh, well, high oil is what caused people to skip their mortgage payments in 08, which caused the the GFC. Which I hate calling it the GFC, and you all have made me morph into that. Um, what would you like to call it? The 07-08 financial yeah. crisis. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. So every, we all
1: go we all go short. But like you've actually been talking a lot about this, uh, and but it is a um a thought that's been around for decades is that. You know, especially from commodity guys is that oil affects markets more than anything. And so like you've been saying, it's like, until we see a sell-off in oil, we're not going to see the S&P like truly rebound and oil just keeps creeping higher. So, um, you know, there's always been a correlation with that. I mean, going back several decades, I mean, we'll see if it holds up this time or not.
0: Uh, and then you mentioned commodity super cycles, the four, well, three main ones, 1870 to 1913, 1946 to 1973. 2000 to 2008 when my buddy jim rogers started calling it he's not really my buddy but we had him on the pod um and then the question is this a new one uh right the the vibe there was yes in metals which for everything we just talked about all this greenification needs a lot of metals plus right battery production is enormous cause of that and oil probably not because once you right eventually there should be some tipping point um but The cure for highest prices
1: is high prices, right? With commodities. Exactly.
0: Moving on. So speaking of multi-asset, all those commodities. So there was a panel on, okay, how do you tail hedge multi-assets? Pretty well covered. How do you tail hedge in equities by way out of the money puts? Although that was also a big theme that that's not as easy as it looks. Um, So cool panel here it was basically getting into the whole like we're in stagflation which assets do you look at how do you cover these things uh we'll throw it out to your buddy Corey hopstein here that there was on stage said uh is risk parity broken because of what's happening in bonds uh which i know drives him crazy so you have any thoughts on that remember what we were doing there um yeah so on the well there was an interesting
1: cross asset panel but I think even though it was supposed to be cross asset I think we t- t- they were talking primarily about equity ball so yeah. the the general consensus was once again that um and 60 that, 40 really right yeah that's been orderly sell off so how is this orderly sell off handle... like affected 6040 but once again the the consensus was dispersions doing well again uh another consensus that was interesting intraday trend is back so intraday trend goes you know in and out of vogue uh typically right everybody thinks you know intraday trends doing really well again and then for a few years they'll be like intraday trend doesn't work anymore and then it will be back again but everybody seems to like you know hate intraday trend usually um the two parts i thought that stood out to me in it and um also, shout out to Anit Chakra from uh, Janice Henderson. I, I enjoyed him on that panel. Also, it was like talking about the difference between uh, contractual versus statistical hedges. So this is where we get into the cross asset class. And you know, we've heard this called many different things. But when he's talking about contractual hedges, is like say when you're buying a put on the S and P because you have S and P beta, so you don't have any basis risk. And then when he's talking about statistical hedges, this is when we start to take a little bit of basis risk. So that's when you know 60-40 when you're using bonds to offset your risk in 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 stocks. Or you start using, you know, cross asset class, you know, volatility plays. Whether then you start going into bonds, interest rates, FX, you know, all of these different ways to prevent, potentially provide hedges against S and P. But now you have basis risk, meaning the, the there's not a correlation of one between S and P and these other asset classes. Where if you buy that put on S and P, the correlation is one because that's a the contractual obligation. But on these statistical hedges, and this is what they spent most of their time on. What's been very interesting to us over time is like. You have a, a conundrum there, right? If your clients are primarily exposed to S and P five hundred beta, you need those contractual hedges against the S and P five hundred. But you also, when when right now, like we're talking about, we have this orderly sell off while vol is high, and so you you have to really pay for you know these uh, contractual hedges, and so fixed strike vol is high. So we're even seeing in sell offs, you know, volatility coming down on the price you've paid. So if that ball's high, you high, know, it behooves you to look against across assets to find cheaper convexity. But when you do so, then you take the basis risk that you're not really necessarily protecting against the S&P exposure. But that's why we've seen managers like 36 South that are doing you know exceedingly well in this environment because they have a cross asset class search for cheap convexity anywhere. And so that's what I thought was the most interesting piece about that panel. Um, and I, I'll stop there, but I'll, I'll tease the next one I thought was interesting, was interesting on that panel is our back test relevant.
0: Yeah. Uh, So I had it down as three types of hedges, the mechanical or structural hedge, right? Puts the statistical hedge, which is bonds, right? Hey, these have, which I'm going to say always with big air quotes, right? Because it's really only the last 30 years, but over the last 30 years, these have, they rally when equities go down. So you should hold them as a defensive asset in a portfolio. So that's a, a statistical correlation that you're needing and expecting to hold. And then event hedges which are in search of cheap convexity, wherever it might be. of some, all right, Russia dislocates natural gas or something, and you can buy these cheap calls and, okay, all right, I got a hedge even though it wasn't tied to anything really in my portfolio. And then one other piece there I'll say throughout was interesting there of that question of, is it too late to hedge? And part of part of them were saying on a right on an institutional level, a lot of times it's like, no, it's never too late to hedge. We we have to have it in those portfolios for its uh, payoff profile. Right. And and there and something we've done and you have to have it there for the ability to hold the risk assets. Right. So you could say it's too late to hedge, but then you should also be reducing your risk asset budget. Right. If you want to pile more into those risk assets in the down move, like then you should have the hedges on for sure. Yeah there's that's to
1: say there's trade offs everywhere like you can have those hedges on even when they're expensive or you can take reduce the hedges but then you need to reduce your exposure so or you can take basis risk and use a proxy hedges which opens you up to basis risk so it's conundrum all the way around and that's it was kind of maybe we'll get to that later it's like uh, my other consensus from the event was um veneer bansali's old paper about diversifying your diversifiers that's what i felt like was also kind of the theme of, of the generally across the uh, the two days we spent there
0: and then the question I didn't ask the one guy in the panel who runs risk premia for fidelity, uh, right. Of like, there's some papers out there. Once a factor becomes a known factor, it loses its factor ability. So a risk premia platform is just allowing institutional investors to say, I want to get the carry factor or the momentum factor or the value factor on and on and on risk, pre- the, uh, you know, or a lot of those can be selling options. So I just want the volatility capture factor. Uh, so I wanted to ask, based on that paper, of like, what's the degradation from when the academic or when you backtest a strategy, which will come back to your backtest, versus when it's academic papers written on, versus once it hits the the factor platform. Right there, some the more yeah. assets go into that, the more it's going to degrade that signal. And yeah, I got, like just, after the fact, I he kind of admitted it might be somewhere between 20 and 30 <laughs> percent at each layer. Yeah, as as
1: every uh arbitrage eventually gets arbed away, right? And by the time they publish academic literature, and we, that's why you're referencing factors, is that's that's what we saw. And as soon as they had the, the crisp data from University of Chicago and all the factor research, and it's been widely published academically, you know, does that disappear? And I think it was like Farouk at Fidelity, but this will give some uh, color too, to the event. Like you were asking that question in one of our breakouts. And then it was interesting, like, uh, you know, obviously people are speaking their books. So if like you work at fidelity, you have to think about how do you educate and speak to fidelity clients. And so like for kept talking about, uh, factors. Right. And it was interesting, like Jem Carson. And when we were talking in the hallway too, it was like, These guys are using, you know, decades old ideas of thinking about markets. He's like, factors are dead. Like the idea is factor, but like, but they're speaking to Fidelity clients and they're trying to make things legible. So they're talking about factors and Jim's like, what the hell are they talking about with factors? Like, what does that even mean anymore?
0: (laughs) Although I'll point out like cliff fastness and value as a factor, just that simplistic strategy has now uh, doing really well in the last six to 12 months. So you can argue both sides. Maybe it does really well now. And then the money flows back in and it starts to underperform.
1: Yeah. And I think what, and then what came up at the very end was with, uh, with Mike at, uh, parametric portfolio is like the idea of our back tests relevant. And there was like kind of a debate between Mike and Farouk about, are they relevant? And like, how do you use them? And as we know, it's like, there's so many implicit biases that go into back tests, you know, back tests are only a rear view mirror and they tend not to work in real time. And it's like the, the, how do we use back tests as crutches or, or I think about them as intuition pumps, but it's almost like, and then we never present clients a bad backtest that goes from the top left to the bottom right. We always show them a backtest that goes from the bottom yeah. left to the top right. So it was an interesting question, especially as markets change, players change in markets, any sort of long-term backtest may be irrelevant given given the market structure and market dynamics. So I'm just curious, if we didn't talk about that. If you had any takes on on backtests.
0: Uh, when I started my old firm, Attain, I built out this great-looking spreadsheet showed how much money we're going to make and took it to my father who started a few businesses and said, dad, what do you think of this business plan? he just looked at me and goes, nobody ever loses money on a spreadsheet, son. So, right. So that's the key to backtest of like, yes, like you said, they're always going to be good. Or you throw them in the trash. Um, and kind of back to my other point of like, what's the degradation. And there were some questions, other panels of like, what did you write practitioners? Like, what did you use for slippage on the equity option cross correlation, right? All these different things. And they're like, um so i think they're valuable but i think they you always have to take them with a, a grain of salt the, the well, problem and- is right if you if you go too far in that direction you say like okay well we could lose 100 percent and everything and you'll never allocate to anything right so if you run all the monte carlos you say okay here's my worst case scenario i always even discount those worst case scenarios and say you could lose way more than that but eventually you have to put a foot in the water right you have to believe in what you're doing and say okay i i'm i, I like this back test right i'm not trusting it that it's going to produce a six sharp for the indefinite future but i'm going to trust it to basically give me the the faith to go into this and then you can control position sizing and whatnot well and then i remember that actually it was it was succinctly
1: put chris cole actually was the first one to ask a question and he asked asked the the panel yeah yeah, what 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 would you uh what do you what do you do to invalidate a back test and it was crickets yeah. and then like chris and i are texting each other right as we asked it and i'm like chris you know what they do it's like if it doesn't prove what your a were, you throw that one in the trash like you just said like it, you just yeah. like we're implicit biases and we don't even realize it but that that is an interesting conundrum it's like what what actually would invalidate the back test and that's what's hard to do like we all think Oh, I'll have an idea and then I'll test it. And if it, if the test doesn't work, I'll invalidate it. But then we always change a parameter to make it work. And then you test in sample, out of sample, but then real life never works like in sample or out of sample. So that was a, it was an interesting
0: question where Chris just silenced the room with like basically like seven (laughs) words. Uh, and the guy, Mike, you mentioned, he did have a nice quote saying back test show that back tests don't work. (laughs) Yeah, that was
1: great. That was a good one.
0: It reminded me of my, one of my favorite lines of 90% of statistics are misleading.
1: Yeah. The next panel, um, I'll, I'll just jump ahead for it because I don't know if you took notes on this, but um, the next panel was on like the risk of, of bonds as a hedge and how to mitigate it. And I didn't have a lot of notes on this one, but I did uh, write down, i uh, got to remember who actually said it on the panel. Uh, I want to say it was Ben Bowler, uh, for head at Equity Drivers at Bank of America. But he talked about the three free puts that everybody's been seeing for the last two to four decades. And those three free puts were the Fed put, uh, bonds as a negatively correlated positive carry hedge and buy the dip mentality. And I just thought that was a, a succinct way of putting it is like uh, a lot of managers or even investors have only seen for the last two, three, four decades, these three forms of free puts.
0: And moving forward, are we about to lose all three forms of free puts? Yeah, right. what even happens if you lose one of the three, right? So yeah. I wrote that down somewhat similar, like your bonds, you bond to get the coupon with a free equity put attached. Right. Right. So that's like, why not do sixty forty? You get this huge, huge free benefit to it. Uh, and then another way of saying that is that dips became alpha. Uh, right. If you were willing and able to buy that dip, that became your alpha versus just a buy and hold uh, strategy. that's going to reduce, you know, lose some money and then make it back. They're adding on the dips. Yeah, the next panel title was
1: uh, navigating portfolios through unknown unknowns. Uh, and we found on the panel actually the title came from Veneer Bansali at Longtail Alpha, and we'll get into why it was unknown unknowns. Where most of the time it felt like we were talking about known unknowns, known unknowns until unknowns. the very, yeah until the very end. But it was uh, Veneer, Chris Cole from Artemis, Michael Green from Simplify, and Jem Carson from Kai. So a lot of our friends on that panel. So obviously we're going to probably take more notes on that panel, be more interested in that panel. Although I, I was telling the guys later, I was like they should just put me on stage like an impressionist, and I could basically give all of their <laughs> speeches. I know them all so well now that like that I would just be... had my internal that debate would be hilarious
0: yeah. let's yeah. do that for another pod later this year <laughs> like I'll okay, dress up in costumes for the next 20 and- minutes your are yeah. go yeah for the next exactly. 20 minutes you're mike green go uh, just
1: argue with myself it would be great
0: yeah and this was like when we saw this panel uh both of us work a lot with those guys so this was like all right we got to go we got to see these guys all on the same stage a big worry that no one was going to be able to get a word in on the same stage <laughs> <laughs> um, but they seem to do okay they seem to respect each other's time a bit and I'll I'll start with uh, I forget what the setup to the joke was. Yeah, it was uh, oh
1: about scoring. So yeah, Chris Chris Cole started with Seawarp. Maybe this will jog your memories. Like, oh yeah, So yeah. it started out with Chris Cole talking about his wins above replacement value and and thinking about portfolio construction. So the only what Chris has found through uh, doing all this exploration into you know Chris Cole's you know Seawarp Cole's wins above replacement value portfolio value is like. How do you put other things in your portfolio value that are uncorrelated or negatively correlated that actually improve the returns of your portfolio? And the, and what the to jump to the conclusion is the only things you should pay for are long volatility and trend following. That's the only things you could you should pay for for portfolio diversification. And what about wins above replacement value is like sometimes uh, you don't need to be scoring the most points if you help the team win. So wins above replacement value is about the the portfolio of the team, and if you help the team either like defensively and not necessarily shows in your offensive statistics, you can be a great team player that helps improve the portfolio. The, the great example always is Dennis Rodman, you know, rebounding skills um, help the bulls score more points, even if Dennis Rodman didn't score zero
0: points. Right. Yeah. Right. So, so does that, does that drains, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he starts off his next thing with like, that was interesting, Chris. He's like, reminded me of myself in college, uh, dating, my dating strategy in college, which was don't score a lot, but always part of the team. Uh, so he delivered it much better got a big laugh out of the room and then I was worried veneer wasn't going to get any words in but he got a little bit in so veneer
1: Veneer was that laid back for like the the first half of the panel because they they, they, you even called it before you're like veneer's not going to get a word in edgewise he doesn't know like what he's dealing with these guys but then so one of the things that jam started to hit on um that he talks about on twitter publicly as well and it was kind of consistent with the whole kind of two days is that we're seeing a flattening of vol on crashes. And what I mean by that is flattening of fixed strike vol. Like vol is coming in and flattening, skew is flattening on crashes because people are already pre-hedged. And so that, that skew has been bid up. Then when, when we see these slight you know, kind of like dip crashes, people are actually selling off their puts and we see skew flattening. So once again, it's the price you pay. So if you're buying out of the money puts and you're paying a high price for them, and you even see the markets come down a little bit, but they didn't. They didn't come down more than expected. So realized in popover pop over implied. You're going to see skew come in and flatten, and so therefore you're going to lose money or potentially like barely break even on your hedges, even though the market's coming down. And that's what happens in an orderly sell off. And That's why I think it was it was part of the overall you know uh, vibe of the whole event. And so he's saying that basically, as long as vol, as vol is continued to be oversupplied. As we've seen like this is going to continue to happen and then i'll kind of skip ahead to the back end on for you because what jem did talk about later was he thinks we are though like in the fifth innings of, of people being hedged and that trope of a hedge market doesn't crash is they all they all start talking about this panel they're seeing little inklings that people are starting to take off their hedges so that people that maybe you know once they they they're convinced to do hedging and then the hedges start not paying off on, on, on small down moves, then they think hedging doesn't work. And so they start taking off the hedges and that leaves the market vulnerable to that crash. And so that's what he's saying. We're starting to see you know, the green shoots there that people are not relying on hedges anymore. But it was like one of the most hedged markets uh, through that echo volatility of of March 2020 through election ball. And then into Q4 of last year, people were starting to have a lot of hedges on. So we're, if we're going to see that supply of hedges come down or not.
0: And then Mike Green brought it up on the flip side of that equation is the big institutional level short vol is down a lot, right? You had the XIV and the Svixy coming into Feb 2018 were a big example of that. Um, I think he's even talking the CalPERS or uh, who is it in Canada, like a systematic vol selling program Uh, that's coming way in after March of 2020, right? There's just not the appetite to sell that at scale yet. Yeah. Uh, we'll,
1: and we'll maybe we'll talk about that later on the insurance panel, same kind of thing. They said they're not, they're not selling, you know, Vega in size anymore or even buying Vega in size because they have, they have all their alternatives and, and things have changed in the insurance industry from a regulatory perspective. The other thing that Chris Cole to echo that sentiment, I thought he had a good quote. He said, it's hard to hard, hard to have a bear market in a bull market in fear. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. and so, so they're saying if, if SKU's been bit up, it's, you know, it's very hard to have a bear market. But I always like to bring up though, too, it's like, yes, that trope works that a hedge market doesn't crash. But if we break through that inflection point, there's always an air pocket after that. So, you know, 90% of the time works all the time until, until we have a huge problem after that. So it's, you know, even though most people want to eventually take off their hedges, um, that's the way we, we don't necessarily think about markets that way. Uh, because what if there's that one event, even though it's maybe worked for the last 10 times, there's
0: none that says it's going to work for the 11th time right it's almost counterintuitive right you should be hedging the further away not the not the normal drawdown but the abnormal drawdown um but mike green actually that like long ball is certainly not cheap and he's seeing any payoffs from here in the vol space being pretty symmetrical uh in terms of the risk versus the, the cost versus the payoff which i'd argue there again of like yes assuming it's a 20 to 30 percent Drawdown. I don't think if it's a 2008 style, right? S and down 56. I uh, I would argue it's still quite asymmetrical. Yeah, so. I, I thought that was an interesting argument by Mike that with the higher skew and the,
1: and then you're paying higher for uh, implied that you know these these shorter sell-offs uh, in duration and, and and even in depth that it's more like delta one instruments and yeah, so you're getting that linear payoff. Well, <laughs> you'll take the linear payoff at least it's better, but like you would prefer convexity. But then Ben Eifert talks about later in his panels, like he still thinks like the deep out of the money or longer term stuff has, you can still find a lot of convexity there. It's just not paying off yet. It's like when we, if we get a sharper sell-off and realize really uh, spikes above implied, we'll see some see some serious convexity there and we'll get into maybe why and what tenors later. But um, one thing I want to touch on too, that like, I don't know the next on your notes is uh, they asked them what they all thought the risks were. So, you know, it's uh, I hate when our managers become a uh, macro <laughs> tourist, but you know, these guys can't help themselves. So, Uh, So they asked him what they, you know, because it started to devolve into like the global landscape and what are the macro events they're worried about. And once again, we were talking about gray swans or known unknowns in this this section, which was the bulk of it. And uh, Chris Cole uh, was banging the drum of corporate solvency again. And to his point is like, you don't see. Um, real vol in markets Tell you see uh, just absolute credit default. Um, and so that that reverberates through the system. Um, Mike Green's number one risk was China. He still thinks that's a huge looming risk that we're, we're losing attention span for. And Jim Carson actually echoed uh, Mike Green's on China, but then he talked about you know fiscal policy and any sort of fiscal mistakes there. And then you're talking about that rise in, in US dollar and, and the wrecking ball that the dollar can present. And then what I liked is, as a veneer came out of left field and said he, he thinks the big uh, known unknown is, is Japan. And yeah. so he's like which
0: is kind of an audible gasp in the audience. Right. I'm like, what Japan, uh, what why Japan? What did he say? Do you remember? Um, basically, like everybody
1: has been quieted by Japan and, and the idea right now. And, and you know, I, I, I don't have any hero trades, but the one I do really like right now is shorting JGBs. Um, you know, especially because you know they they've said they're going to yield curve control. They're going to pin it at fifty bips, but it'll be interesting if if the market can break it through there. So is this another you know Soros ERM kind of experience? But the, why why I think they trade so interesting is that because everybody got burned for decades on short JDBs. and so you yeah. have the, all this recency bias with a lot of managers that if you told them you're short JGBs JGBs, people think you're a lunatic. So I wonder if that's part of the trade. And so that's why um, Veneer just, just for thought, those
0: non professionals out here shorting. JGBs, Japanese government bonds, shorting them, short the bond rates higher. So it's basically betting that the Japanese central bank can't keep their rates pinned at 50 bips and that it's going to go up to 1%, 2%, whatever. Right. Um, and the size of the convexity
1: you can get there, especially when everybody's on the other side, is always interesting. And I think what, and what we've seen point- in
0: US bonds here, like the convexity on that, this to start this year has been huge. Nobody thought coming off that zero bound, right? Any move in rates that get huge convexity there. Yeah. And
1: I think that Veneer's point was everybody's focused on China and Russia. And so like the reverberations that we're already seeing with China, I mean, Japan cracking, that those could reverberate much larger than China or Russia potentially could.
0: Two things going back, Jim talked a little bit about, which I've talked with him on the pod and some others on the pod of like, are we in the golden age of options trading? Uh, some people have said, are you kidding? I used to be able to trade options in 1995. I think you've said that, like you were trading options from your, um, but he had some good points. You've got Robinhood, you've got the technology, but he thinks it's more of people's brains have evolved to the place. Investors' brains have evolved to the place where they want this uh, non, they they're understanding non-linearity more. And they want to be able to bet on multiple different types of outcomes versus just, I like the stock. I want it to go up like, okay, I like the stock over this time period. This volatility, yes. So it's people are moving into the 3D space essentially. Um, a lot of that is bad that we've seen in meme stocks and in Robinhood and all that of like people don't know what they're getting into. But I think overall I agree with them that yeah, the the kimono's open, the lids off, whatever the saying is, and people are rushing into this 3D chess space. Um, and I think a lot of good will come of it, right? You can you can hedge better, and maybe we're seeing that like the hedge you can hedge. All these different paths of been a lot better
1: um yeah i think that jem has been doing a great job of like banging the drum on this is like and that's why he was hating on like the factors and he's saying people are talking like a decade old
0: is that everybody he yes, thinks factors like, are still, linear
1: yeah yeah linear and everybody's making binary bets right it's either up or down and his point is like you actually get the full distribution through options trading and like you're saying it, it, you're talking 3d now because we add the factor of time And that's why it gives you the broader paintbrush, but also gives you the full distribution. And this is why he thinks options are the tail that wags the dog in that sense is like because of the size of the markets and the distributions and how that can move markets as people try to hedge it on, you know, kind of flows over pros kind of idea. Um, Yeah. Jem has always been banging that drum. And I think it's an interesting way to think about markets is like, yeah, we're, we, most people are living in a linear world where we should be living or a a two-dimensional world. We should be living in a three-dimensional world.
0: Mike Green talked a little bit about the duration sell-off, or it's been mostly a duration sell-off so far in rates. He thinks the the interesting thing is what happens next, um, right? If we still, if we get some higher rates in the longer end and stuff, if corporates are, he's saying, are already seeing having trouble getting credit, uh, which feeds back into Chris Cole's thing. He said the debt to GDP, or corporate bond to GDP, or high yield was it? High yield issuance to GDP is had, the highest yep. it's ever been. Highest it's ever been in this rising rate environment. What does that look like? How many companies can't make their payments? Abe was saying like 100% of corporate profits are going to have to go to just covering that debt, right? Which is unsustainable. So they'll either shut down or restructure the debt, right? They have to do something. And that's uh,
1: Hyman Minsky's credit cycle. Uh, we eventually get to what he called Ponzi finance, where you can't, like, you start off being able to service principal and interest. Then as, as times get better, we then only service interest. And then as times get yeah. better, then we can only use debt to service the interest rate debt. So that's what he called Ponzi finance. And that's what like Chris is eventually getting to as rates rise, um, they can't service their debt at all. And, and, you know, does that lead to cracks in the system? And Chris's contention is that you really need stuff like credit defaults or deflationary bust. To really r- rock markets, it's not necessarily any sort of yeah, um, unholy far um, cascades, yeah, yeah, exactly. That liquidity
0: and solvency are more important than anything else. Well, I think, right, the point there is that's when people really panic, right? Like, we're going out of business, I don't care what it costs, yeah. sell that, sell this piece or that piece, right? That's what really drives acceleration,
1: and that's his argument right now is that, yeah, that's why we see organized sell off because it's just some financial assets, we're not seeing like solvency issues. I mean, he thinks they're under the under the hood so we'll see and and what was interesting i thought the other interesting piece that chris brought up was that he said uh you know basically inflation subsumes equity ball so if you think about what uh chris and and my buddy corey always talk about is like you know volatility cannot volatility cannot be destroyed only transmuted or transformed and that would be chris's contention is that we're if we're not seeing a rise in equity ball it's because inflation is eating up all that volatility
0: so or is you said another way it's it's uh manifesting itself itself in inflation instead of an equity ball exactly yeah thank you um not to cut you sorry then i had under veneer this is funny just they finally let him talk that was my note (laughs) 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 Uh, but but veneer came around at the
1: end so veneer talked about the tiger problem which you know i'm gonna love uh, but and and hopefully, like Taylor jumped on that too, is like he's probably gonna write an essay on it because I knew Taylor would love this uh, tiger problem. But it comes from like computer science. But the question really around the tiger problem is what happens? What do you do when you don't know? And that's why uh, Veneer had that title originally of you know uh, navigating portfolios through unknown unknowns. So if like you can't know anything, even though the panel is mainly talking about known unknowns, Veneer got to this in the end is like you have to diversify your diversifiers, which Veneer wrote a great paper on. I highly recommend people look it up. And then you have to focus on the consequences. So you want optionality and you don't want to optimize portfolios. So his point was when you think you know what's going to happen in the future, people tend to over-optimize to efficient frontiers and take on too much leverage. Where if you go from the basis of, I don't know anything, so I'm going to focus on the consequences and provide myself with robust optionality, is that's how you construct portfolios for these times.
0: It's why there was the Santa, the Maria, and the... (laughs) pinta what was that? <laughs> the pinta right. right 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 hey one of these three might let's send them on which was probably dumb because they're all going to get caught in the same storm weren't they like yeah exactly they all following each other yeah. um, they're 100 yards away from each other the entire yeah. time uh but i also love veneer said he had some good lines on the fed heads these the heads of central banks are lawyers not economists and he's yeah. saying they have a problem and they can't solve solve all three at the same time, inflation, employment, and GDP. Right. And like you push on one lever or something else is going to pop up. You push on that head, the old whack-a-mole game. And then he finished with, we should all thank the fed for our jobs and long volatility because, because yeah. eventually, right. They're going to make it, make it pay off. Um, and then I'll give, uh, I don't know if this is uh
1: Talking out of school, but I, I think he's talking about it publicly. I'll give him more color. It's like for those that don't know, uh, Veneer is also a helicopter pilot, a jet pilot, and uh, dabbles in in writing screenplays. So uh, once again, vying for most interesting a, man in the back world, a
0: backcountry snowboarder.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's so like that's what you and I love talking about is like why do our long ball guys always take like enormous
0: risk in their personal lives? Yeah, Noel Smith on the pod a couple of weeks ago, right? He does like this mountain biking flips and aerials and stuff veneer right uh, and he, he actually had a good thing he's like well on the plane there's four stages of flight and there's a checklist and so to his point of like there's known unknowns what happens if an engine fails and he's like when i was flying out here i'm like how many engines <laughs> yeah. we'll leave we'll leave that one be but he, he flew yeah. out on a two engine jet
1: and then um, uh and then for those that don't know chris cole loves to be a rock climber my favorite one that i it blows my mind is uh, Bastian Ballesta likes to do ice climbing and then and paddleboarding on on fro like across frigid lakes
0: in 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 the Swiss Alps. I mean, like it's yeah. it's that one's right. like crazy to me. <laughs> uh, and then the question I asked some stupid question of like uh, around can a hedge mark hedge market crash? And then later on, I wanted to say the question I wanted to ask came to my mind: if we took all four of you guys right out of this room into the poker room and you're playing poker against each other who's who's coming out ahead that would have that would have been a better question right that's really interesting now you got me thinking (laughs) (sighs) yeah
1: oh i I think any of my answers if anybody listens to this they're gonna be upset about but i was thinking like who's gonna be best not necessarily at the the mathematics of the hand because i think that's just gonna be be like a a loose
0: player and kind of playing hands and like uh, making you right like pushing veneers like Super tight, holding back, Yeah, um, waiting for the the top pair. And then and I'm uh, thinking like
1: who's going to be best at like playing the player because that's what they're eventually going to get to is the psychology of it. And my my first leap was to actually Mike Green on that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And then Chris would be somewhere in the middle. He, he'd be dynamic, right? He'd be like sometimes tight, tight yeah. sometimes aggressive. That'd be fun. But then I, I was also
1: thinking, though, on your sense, like Jem could throw everybody off because he'd be talking the whole game. <laughs> you know yeah. <laughs> You'd be in right. yeah look over
0: here look over here
1: The near might get bored i don't know like yeah uh an interesting can we question? jump
0: in the time machine and go back and ask that
1: yeah that's great the hard part like you, we said is like we know all these players and even you know especially on this panel but even throughout the few days is like uh kind of know what they're going to say so i only wrote down things that kind of jumped out at me that were unusual so i apologize for not you know, giving broader swath to like their actual arguments. Cause I think you can find those in other places or if you follow these yeah, guys, exactly. you'll know exactly what they are.
0: Uh, I just think, and got touched on another panel. One thing I wrote down of like the Mike Green brought up the big reduction in the number of option market makers, right? Like it's just a few yes. handful of firms. What does that do? That's Corey's liquidity cascade paper. Uh, Right. What does that do in some sort of cascade, some sort of liquidity event? They don't have, right. They're not a public utility. They don't have to guarantee liquidity to the market.
1: Yeah. So that was, that's a good one. Cause actually to get more color on that, the second day at lunch, Mike Green, Chris Cidial and I were having this conversation and it's twofold. That And if you haven't read Chris Cidial's Ambrose paper recently about this topic as well is like, not only you consolidated down to like four banks at like the OTC option level. So that's that's a that's a worry that you have consolidate four banks then like you're saying we've consolidated down to like four market makers in the electronic options you know whether it's Sig Wolverine Optiver um and Citadel and so like yeah. when you said like on the on the electri- electronic listed markets they can pull liquidity at any time and then what happens to the OTC where you're taking counterparty risk and we're down to like four banks and then maybe they're having the same trades on um that was what we saw they're still not talking to each other with the Archegos blow up where they're all like Adding incredible leverage um, to that system. So, yeah, well, we when saw
0: there, it fastest out the door wins, right? <laughs> exactly. And Goldman's yeah. always the fastest out the door. Yeah. Whoop, we're out of
1: here. <laughs> hey guys, let's stick into this together as they're running out the door.
0: This next one was benchmarks and volatility. Yeah. So, I, uh, I have a few notes on this because I thought it was interesting. And it's, um,
1: once again, much more like institutional panel. Um, what I thought was interesting is um like they were talking about liquidity primarily right and yeah. stacy gilbert that
0: runs tens of billions is that right you, you i don't it know up, but right? yeah she was super smart oh yeah i pulled it up yeah with yeah maybe 40 some billions
1: yeah stacy gilbert at Glenmead was talking about uh during the crisis the world goes to indexes for liquidity and so I, I wrote that down because we think about this often as as we talked about at the beginning of this is like the idea of you know your contractual risk that you're tied to s p beta with buying s p puts or you can take basis risk and go out and look for convexity in other other marketplaces to hedge your S&P risk. But the interesting thing is like do you need to do that if the world's instrument for liquidity is S&P. So like Wayne Himmelstein and I have talked about this a lot. It's like this is why he believes in uh S&P index options is because that is the global source of liquidity and when liquidity dries up and the world crashes, everybody rushes into the S&P 500 whether it's SPX or SPX options, E-mini, E-mini options is like, it's the most liquid market in the world. And when everybody's searching for cash and liquidity, that's where everybody rushes into.
0: And it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Like yeah. if you if you know everyone's rushing into there, that's where you're going to be. That's where you're going to trade. Um, right.
1: And I think part of that is too, like we haven't seen that real fear and panic for everybody to rush in. And that's why we're saying like the hedge market doesn't crash or vol's oversupplied. Um, and I think you had a good analogy. I'll let you talk about like insurance, right? Like a, a housing insurance is like, if everybody has a housing insurance, nobody's necessarily worried about their house burning down. But if you only have a million dollars of house insurance and your house is valued at 2 million and the fire starts, you're going to be rushing to get that other extra million in coverage. Is that like a, a fair
0: assessment is as your high five and your kids? Yeah. Uh, he got back from space camp at midnight last oh, nice. night and just nice. woke up twelve fourteen Chicago time. Uh, well done. Son after my own heart. Bed at midnight, <laughs> wakes up at noon. Twelve full hours. He, uh, I don't think I was me on the insurance thing. I, I well, really Corey like, wrote
1: about it recently, but yeah. I thought you like rewrote about it maybe in our our newsletter. I think, but um, yeah, or like um, or Jam was talking about too, like and Corey both about like flying in a plane at thirty thousand feet is that's the multiple evaluation, you know, versus like yeah, velocity yeah. and like there's a bunch of analogies for that. But I'll also jump to like who was also on that panel is Russell Rhodes, who is at you know Sibo for a long time, but now. Uh, Russell is head of research and consulting for EQD. So Russell always pulls up the great statistics because he just got such a curious mind. It was great talking to him at dinner on the first night uh, before the event started. Um, so but got he's
0: great glasses. Right? Yeah, so he had the great like the red, red or, the
1: red yeah. the red frame ones were really cool. I like those. Um, so he said uh, he said I can't believe I'm going to say this as the as the Dr. Vix or whatever, but he's like, there's a lot more to volatility than Vix. And he brought up this statistic. No, that he, the P- he
0: said, well, this got me fired for saying this last time, but there's a lot more vol- to volatility than VIX because he literally worked for the SIBO promoting VIX. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And he said, like, and so he brought up, for example, the, the P-put index, which is basically long S&P beta, and then buying a negative 5% on the money put is down 15% year to date.
0: Yeah.
1: And you're like, how does that make what? sense? And the right, market sold off protection. 15%. Yeah, exactly. That, that protection is not paying out because like you said, volatility is not uh, really manifesting itself. Uh, the other random statistic, and he was talking about this at dinner, and then he brought it up on the panel too. It's like, he said, we've never seen a rebound from a bear market without VIX being above 45. And so he's like, is this the first time we're going to see that? Or or do we need, and Stacy actually came back and said, she thinks that you need that capitulation in the end. And she said, we haven't seen that yet. And she said, it could be still 12 to 18 months out you know, from, from now to 18 months. But, but did she we said, ever
0: get in a bear market? That's the... Thing, well, that's right? what she's And yeah,
1: that's the question they were kind of saying too. And it's like, do you see this orderly sell-off turn into a disorderly sell-off? And that's when you're, you're going to see the VIX above 45. And that's where we had the true crash and then eventual kind of rebound.
0: Uh, so I had a few things. There. One... This was like the seventeenth time someone said dispersion's doing really well. So during this panel here on this page, I have <laughs> I wrote down my spidey sense tells me dispersion worst performer moving forward. <laughs> yeah, I think you uh, you wrote a note to me while you're sitting there. It's like number one, dispersion
1: doing great. Number two, this is the high, this is the, yeah, top, the top, top tick for dis- the top is in for dispersion. And so yeah, we'll we'll also get to that later too, as well as we go actually into the next panel, which was uh, another one. You, unless you want to, was there? Anything yeah, I just had one thing,
0: Russell? Russell. I think he asked the question and nobody really answered it, but I thought it was interesting. Is the proliferation of products and tenors? I'm not sure if he said tenors, but is that smoothing vol, right? I can trade on Monday, yes. I can trade on Wednesday, I can trade Friday. So is the proliferation of that? And I've brought up to some option people are like, are we eventually going to get to hourly options? Like, right? Like, where's the end? These are for profit exchanges, um, right? With big booths and dinners and giveaways here at this conference. Uh, what what does the end game look like for the supply of derivative instruments to cover anything you can think of, and is that cause a smoothing of volatility overall? Right. In the yeah, old days, was, if if I could only do S, right, it kind of goes counter to what we just said. Of like everyone's doing it in the S and P S&P options, S P X options, because that's where the liquidity is. But maybe not so much anymore because they can also do these these different tenors and whatnot.
1: Yeah, it was. So Joe Elmlinger from uh, Lake Hill completely disagreed with Russell on that. he's like, well, where he's like, my gut reaction is no, but he's like, I need to think it through more. But like, I thought it was interesting when, Like, like you're saying it's Russell saying it's like, have we not seen the pop in VIX because of the proliferation of all these products and people can kind of disperse all of their tenors and, and smooth out the vol curves in that way. And so it's like, so that's what Russell's trying to hint at or guess at is he's trying to figure out, you know, the, once again, is like you're saying, is it volatility is, is not just VIX. And so is this the, is this why we're not seeing it manifest in VIX? And I thought that was an interesting way of thinking about it is like, especially as we move down to those those one-day options and people can use that finer paintbrush and and disperse their their hedging uh, both long and short, it'd be really interesting. I, I thought that was an interesting question. I'm not sure I know the answer either. Yeah. Uh, when but it, it speaks was
0: a, to dispersion too, like it, if we yeah. haven't seen it there, we've seen it in other places. That's the definition of dispersion, right? Of like, yeah. we've seen it in single name stocks. We've seen it in the NASDAQ versus the S&P. So, but um, part
1: of... And then when I would touch on what Russell's also saying, and this is what we were talking about back tests earlier, is the markets change all the time. And so if we want, you know, like you said, we were originally like quarterly option cycle. Now we're down to like daily option cycle and we'll see even less than that. It's like, does your back test account for that? And like we said, yeah. we see interday vol is where it's been all the action or overnight vol as well. And like, so it's like, if you're using, uh, you know, open to close vol, you might not see a lot of this stuff. So, you know, markets can change pretty dramatically. So, once again, it, that can dramatically affect the back test.
0: Uh, you mentioned the Stacey, she had a great quote on QT that I wrote down here. Uh, she's like, imagine we're out on the casino floor. Vegas really lends itself <laughs> yeah. in the conference, yeah. right? You can quickly pull all these metrics. Yeah. She's so like, imagine we're out there in the casino floor, and someone's throwing thousand-dollar chips onto the floor, just right. Everyone's running, pick them up, pick them up. Uh, he's like, when it stops, if you didn't get one, you're really pissed off. And she's like, defining QT. She's like, that's where we are. the The thousand-dollar chips have stopped being thrown on the floor. You either got one and you want ten, or you did got none and and you're pissed off and you're throwing a temper tantrum, taper tantrum, so to speak. Um. So I thought that was a fun little, yeah. It was,
1: it, I, I, it was great for me to think about it that way. Cause I've actually used a similar anecdote but in a different vein. And so thinking about that way helped me is like, I always said, imagine you go over to your neighbor's house on the first of the month and you give him $10,000 in cash. You know, at first he's going to be like, no, I can't take it. Like all this stuff. Right. And eventually get him to take it right. And the next month you come and give him $10,000 cash for the first of the month. Right. And you do that for like nine months straight. And then you stop your neighbor is going to hate (laughs) you. Right. And I I actually use the analogy. You should
0: have never given me that in the first place. Yeah.
1: Right. I I use the analogy for uh, Chris Cidial and I were talking about like athletes and everything and like you all the dependents and posse. That's what I was using it for is like you start providing a living for your family and friends and then you take that punch bowl away. You're going to be the enemy. Not that like, oh, thanks for the help. You really, you know, all that stuff. No, no, no. At the end of the day, you're you're the asshole.
0: That's it for the episode today. Thanks to Jason Buck for his insight. Thanks to Jeff Berger for splicing this all together. Thanks to RCM for supporting. We'll see you next week on this channel. And make sure to head over to Mutiny Investing Pod for the second part of this conference breakdown. Peace.
1: You've been listening to The Derivative. Links from this episode will be in the episode description of this channel. Follow us on Twitter at RCM Alts. And visit our website to read our blog or subscribe to our newsletter at rcmalts.com. If you liked our show, introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe. And be sure to leave comments. We'd love to hear from you. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as legal, business, investment, or tax advice. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of RCM Alternatives, their affiliates, or companies featured. Due to industry regulations, participants on this podcast are instructed not to make specific trade recommendations nor reference past or potential profits. And listeners are reminded that managed futures, commodity trading, and other alternative investments are complex and carry a risk of substantial losses. As such, they are not suitable for all investors.